As Oliver Stone's much-awaited new film Snowden hits the theaters, a new book takes on his iconic and polarizing career. I talk to author Matt Zoller-Seitz. Plus, the Sundance smash hit documentary Tickled. It is so not what you think. This is Pop Culture Confidential. Hi, I'm Christina Yerling Biru. Thank you so much for listening. Today, I talk to documentary director David Farrier, a journalist from New Zealand's TV3, who, while working on a light entertainment report for his show, stumbled across a sport he had not heard of, competitive endurance tickling. But what followed when he started investigating the company running the competitions may be one of the most frightening stories of abuse of power and internet bullying I have heard of in a long time. But first... A filmmaker who's taken a great deal of interest in stories of abuse of power and injustice, American politics and conspiracies, is multiple Academy Award-winning director Oliver Stone. Stone turned 70 in September, and it coincides with the release of the new book, The Oliver Stone Experience, and his highly anticipated film Snowden, about computer analyst and whistleblower Edward Snowden. Behind the new book, The Oliver Stone Experience, is critic and author Matt Zoller-Seitz, who's been a guest on Pop Culture Confidential previously. Between 2011 and 2015, Seitz spent 100 hours interviewing the director, and the book includes personal photos provided by Stone, script pages, and production materials. The conversations go from childhood. He was the son of a Republican stockbroker. The trauma of Stone's experience in Vietnam, his struggles with post-traumatic stress disorder, the controversies, and the background to his singular cinematic legacy. Oliver Stone's work as writer, producer, and director includes Midnight Express, Scarface, Salvador, Platoon, Wall Street, Born on the Fourth of July, The Doors, JFK, Natural Born Killers, Any Given Sunday, just to name a few. I'm very pleased to welcome back to the show Matt Zoller-Seitz. Matt, welcome back to the show. Thank you so much for talking to me again. Well, thank you. The Oliver Stone Experience is such an incredible book. Reading it to me, I'm, he was, he's been sort of a big presence in my film life. I guess it's my age and such. It really reminded me of, of sort of how pro- prolific he's been. You, you tend to forget that, but thank you so much. Thank you. Something you write in the book struck a chord with me in terms of how I'm interested in pop culture. You write about yourself. Oliver's films are partly responsible for encouraging me to question received wisdom and understand how politics and popular culture join hands to perpetuate ideology. Can you explain a little bit what you mean by that, what Stone does for you? Well, I came of age in the 1980s in Dallas, Texas, and it was a very conservative time in a very conservative part of the United States. And, um, it was, uh, Ronald Reagan was the president and it was just, you know, I didn't, it didn't even occur to me that I was the way I was because of my, my upbringing and my culture. And I was a, I was a Republican kid. I was very, uh, uh, intolerant of a lot of other political opinions and things. And I, and I, and I think I had started to change a little bit when I started to go to an arts high school, but I still had a lot of that, that kind of conditioning. And, and 
the movies that I was consuming at that time were very, very conservative too, very reactionary. I mean, when you look at a lot of these films from the 1980s, Hollywood films, um, films like uh, Fatal Attraction and and uh, Beverly Hills Cop and Top Gun and and uh, the the Sylvester Stallone Rambo films and the Schwarzenegger films. These are very these are very conservative movies and and they were stylistically pretty conservative and politically very much so. Like the messages that were embedded in them. And uh, when I was about seventeen. Um, my, a friend of mine gave me a video cassette of this movie Salvador, which is Oliver's third film. And it's about these two guys who go down to El Salvador and they're looking for, you know, cheap, cheap booze and cheap hookers. They don't really have any political ambition at all to speak of their lives are disasters. So they're going, just going there just to go there and they get involved in the political situation down there and they discover that they actually uh, are, they have the capacity to be outraged. They have the capacity to care about things, particularly James Woods' character, who's this photojournalist. And uh, I had no idea that any of that stuff was going on down there. I mean, I think I was sort of dimly aware that, that the U.S. was intervening in Central America because some of my classmates were talking about it, but I, I didn't, I hadn't seen it dramatized. I hadn't seen it dramatized in that way before. I'm not a fucking spy for you guys. Left wing colonel? Well, maybe, but I'm not a communist. And you guys never, ever seem to be able to tell the difference. Is that a fact? Yeah, it's a fact. You know, I love my country as much as you do. That may surprise you. You were the ones who trained Major Max in, in uh, the police academy in Washington. You were the ones who trained Jose Medrano and Rene Chacon. You trained them how to torture and how to kill, and then you sent them here. And what did Chacon give us? He gave us the Mono Blanco. I mean, what are the death squads but the brainchild of the CIA? But you'll run with them because they're anti-Moscow. Bullshit. You let them close down the universities. You let them wipe out the best minds in the country. You let them kill whoever they want. You let them wipe out the Catholic Church, and you let them do it all because they aren't commies. And that, Colonel, is bullshit. You created Major Frankenstein. It really affected me. It really, it, I started reading about it. I started reading about Vietnam also because there were all these references to, to El, El Salvador being another Vietnam in terms of the U.S. intervening down there. Um, it didn't quite turn out that way, but at the time people were afraid it would. And uh, that was kind of the beginning for me. Uh, the beginning of a, of a political change, but also a, a, an interest in a different kind of movies that I had been consuming up until that point. Um, I'm going to get back to the Vietnam things. It seems you can really see in your book that to understand him, you have to understand that time. But when I talk to people, um, most seem to agree that Oliver Stone's movies are very iconic in American cinema, of course. But the reaction is different from, say, a Spielberg. He's very polarizing. Why, why would you say that is? He's not reassuring. He's not a reassuring filmmaker. I mean, Spielberg is, is a political filmmaker, too, in his way. And people seem to forget that periodically, and then they're reminded of it again. But Spielberg has made uh, movies about American history that have a political viewpoint, and his fantasy films have their own messages embedded in them. But with Oliver, it's all right out there where you can see it. I mean, it's very plain to see, and he... he makes movies, he often makes movies that are about American society, American culture... 
and and in particular uh, the the way that the America America's view of itself is uh, affects the rest of the world. Um, that's that's his that's his main subject a lot of the time, and uh, Spielberg's not like that. Even Scorsese's not like that. And we have a section in the book where. Oliver and I discussed the films of Martin Scorsese at some length because Scorsese was his uh, mentor. He was his film teacher at NYU. And, uh, and Oliver says, and I think he's right. He says, you know, I don't think Scorsese really has any strong political opinions about anything. And, and I don't, I, I agree with that. I don't think he does. I think he might have some real kind of general general opinions about stuff, but, but nothing that he would put into a film really. He has opinions about male conditioning and, and, and corruption and crime and society, you know, certain, you know, certain, certain points of view on that, but not like Oliver. He doesn't have a worldview. Oliver has a very specific, very detailed, fully articulated worldview about how America sees itself, how it sees the rest of the world, how it treats the rest of the world. And it's been, he's been developing it for 30 years, and, and it comes through. He uses the terminology, the beast, right? Sort of to describe power in the military-industrial complex and such, right? Yeah, he does. He, he It's almost like a Frankenstein sort of metaphor for uh, American politics. Like, he, Oliver believes that at the end of World War II, the United States was the most powerful country on the planet, and we continued to accumulate power, and we were kind of drunk on our own power, and we started, uh, we, you know, we had always been intervening in other people's countries, but we got much more, uh, how would you say, blatant about it, much more blatant and much more... Um, uh, arrogant about it. And, and we were going to, not only were, we were going to intervene in other countries, we were going to intervene in order to change them for the better, i.e. make them more like Americans. And, uh, platoon, Salvador, born on the 4th of July, um, JFK, heaven and earth, um, Nixon, and then, you know, on after that, even in things like, you know, uh, Savages, his documentary series, Untold History, W, he keeps returning to that. It's because, you know, that's how he ended up in Vietnam. You know, there's a personal connection there. His father was a Wall Street stockbroker. His mother was a French liberal. Why did he actually enlist? A lot of it was because, well, for one thing, he had absorbed his father's values. His father was a Republican who voted for Richard Nixon and, you know, his dad had some sensible, he had some sensitive aspects. Um, uh, you know, he wasn't like a Archie Bunker kind of reactionary sort of person, but, but he had, uh, uh, he wanted to, he, he, he kind of, you know, he just, he took his father's values. He took his father's values. And when he was a teenager, he went to find himself, by going to by enlisting in the merchant marine, which is um, not not a part of the U.S. military. It's a it's a, a kind of a shipping kind of tran transportation sort of organization. And he went to the Far East. He went to Vietnam. He taught and all of that. And uh, he came back and he decided he was going to write the great American novel. And he wrote this massive massive book 
and he submitted it to some publishers and they all rejected it. And he was so heartbroken that he enlisted, he enlisted in Vietnam and, uh, he enlisted, I guess, to just complete the transformation. He, he said he wanted to destroy himself. He, that, that it was a, in retrospect, there was probably an element of a, of a death wish of suicide to it. Because, you know, if you, you know, if you list for the infantry in Vietnam, the, you're more, you're probably most likely to be killed of any, you know, any branch serving in the military. He knew this. Um, and then he survived it. He actually survived it. He was decorated and he came out with a, uh, with a lot of experiences to think about and write about. And, and a lot of this led to him enrolling in New York university where he, he became a film student and he learned from Martin Scorsese. So, you know, he, his, he, he got out of Vietnam. He had uh, trauma. He was traumatized. He had, he says he had some post-traumatic stress disorder. He had all of these experiences, many, many of which were really, really pretty harrowing. But he also had uh, something to talk about, something to make sense of. And uh, I, think all, I, I think everything Oliver is really starts there. Right. And he's, he's a little sensitive when I say that because nobody wants to be reduced to one experience. But if you look at his movies, Jay Hoberman, the critic for a longtime critic for The Village Voice, once said that uh, he joked about JFK. He said, so JFK... So basically, Oliver Stone made JFK so uh, that he could understand how he ended up in Vietnam. <laughs> and I think he was being—I think he was being kind of derisive about it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But I also—but uh, but I think it's true. I think it's true. I think that is one of the, a big reason why he made JFK. It's a big reason why he made Nixon. And this thing that you mentioned, the Beast—that's a phrase that Oliver uses over and over again. Um, Norman Mailer once wrote that he believed that the CIA was the secret author of American history after World War II. And Oliver, I I told that quote to Oliver, and Oliver actually agrees with it. And uh, the beast, uh, you know, the beast is his word for the military-industrial complex, which he believes is, is kind of pressuring the United States government, the Congress, the presidency, and is in cahoots with um, arms manufacturers who just want to make money and they don't really care what happens in war as long as they're making money. And, and a lot of people dismiss this point of view as being simplistic or cynical, but I don't. I think there's a lot of truth to it. FBI tried two sets of tests. Not one of their sharpshooters could match Oswald's performance. Not one. And Oswald was at best a medium shot. The scope was defective on it too. I mean, this is the whole essence of the case to me. The guy couldn't do the shooting. Nobody could. And they sold this lemon to the American public. And he has this ongoing theme of sort of a hero fighting conspiracy or trying to find that all of his it seems to be like a flawed hero having to find the truth or thrown into a situation where they have to figure it out. Yes, absolutely. And and the characters are once in a while you get a character who's just basically idealistic and nice like uh Ron Kovic and Born on the 4th of July. Right. He's just a kid. He's just a kid. He's just a teenager from Long Island. There's nothing really too too complicated about him. Um, and uh, the hero in JFK is pretty straightforward. Um, and Snowden, Edward Snowden in the new movie is very much a, a, a kind of an idealistic person. He's not like a, 
he's like a dark or broken or sleazy person, but a lot of Oliver Stone's heroes are. A lot of Oliver Stone's heroes are not very heroic when you on first glance. And a lot of them are not really heroes. A lot of them are troubled. They're anti-heroes or they're, there's something kind of villainous about them. And, uh, but they have, but they have value. Their lives have value. They have interesting things to say to the, to the audience, like the, the characters, natural born killers are, uh, killers. Mm. They're murderers. They're mass murderers. And, and you, you know, that's one of the reasons why that film was so controversial because usually movies about, um, serial killers or mass murderers, the, the main character is not that killer. Right. It's, 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 you know, there's some person who becomes friends with the killer or is trying to catch them or something. And that's the person we identify with. And Oliver, uh, uh, one of the things that's consistently gotten Oliver into trouble is, um, he, he has never really understood that, that American movies expect you to have what you call an audience surrogate, mm-hmm. which is sort of a bland, kind of undeveloped person that the audience can project themselves onto. And in fact, there's a point in the book where I think we're talking about natural born killers, probably. And I say, well, your movies never have an audience surrogate. And he says, what is that? <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, he wasn't kidding. He said, what is that? And I told him and he said, like, I don't know. I don't know what that is. I don't know why anybody would want that in a movie. and in terms of natural born killers regardless of how you feel about it that just gets more and more current i mean the fact of uh, people killing and becoming celebrities come on up i can see anyone i'm fucked during this whole escape thing they're kind of a bond between us no not really you're scum way you did it for ratings you don't give a shit about us or about anybody except yourself that's why nobody gives shit about you that's why helicopters we're not deployed. Wait a minute, you fucking hypocrite. What about the Indian? You said that you were done with killing. You said love beats the demon. You said that love beats the demon. I am, and it will. It's just that you're the last one, Wayne. No, oh, maybe fucking kill me. This is not about you, you egomaniac. I kind of like you. No. But if we let you go, we'd be just like everybody else. Killing you. And what you represent is a statement. Natural Born Killers is a movie that was, you know, that was a movie that was really, really, really uh, hard to take for a lot of people. I mean, that was that was one of his most financially successful films, but it was not on the order of like Platoon or JFK. It was kind of a, a modest hit considering what it was about and when it was released. But... Um, He's made a lot of films that are very troubling to a lot of people. And it's the content of them that's part of it. It's the, you know, it's the violence, it's the sex, it's the drugs, but it's also the worldview that troubles people. Um, this idea, and, and American viewers, I, I find it kind of amazing that there was a time when American viewers embraced Oliver Stone and were excited about his movies because he's really not a very reassuring filmmaker. <laughs> and, and if you go back and you look at Platoon and uh, Wall Street, JFK, um, Born on the Fourth of July, these are all big hits. Um, they're, not, they're, not, they're not mirrors. They're not flattering mirrors. 
that are held up to the audience. They're very critical. They're all, they're also kind of frightening in certain ways. And uh, when I think about the fact that born on the 4th of July, which is about a young man who goes to Vietnam, he becomes a paraplegic and comes back and turns into an anti-war protester. And, you know, it deals very frankly with his castration in the war. What do I have to do? Make you ever put your hands on me. All I'm saying is I just want to be treated like a human being. What in the shit? Just want to keep me fucking drunk so I don't know what's going on around here, man. This is a fucking slum. What up, man? Fine. We take that leg of yours, we get you out of here in two weeks. I want my leg. What? I want my leg. What? You can't feel it no how? It's my leg. I want my leg, you understand? Can't you understand that? All I'm saying is I want to be treated like a human being. I fought for my country. I am a Vietnam veteran. I fought for my country. Fucking, I deserve to be treated for... Decent! Decent! I heard that right, you fuck! Vietnam don't mean nothing to me, man. Or any of these other people. You got it? You see, you can take your Vietnam and shove it up your ass. This movie was uh, surprisingly successful considering the time in which it was released, which was 1989, Christmas of 1989. And a lot of people forget this, but what was happening in Christmas of 1999 was uh, the United States military was preparing to invade Panama. And I remember this, and I was working at a college bookstore at the time when all this was happening. And I, and I was getting into big fights with this guy who worked in the bookstore who was really pro-intervention and pro-Bush, pro, you know, the or first George Bush, the elder. And uh, I was going to see Born on the Fourth of July uh, when it opened. And he and I, I mentioned that to somebody, and this guy overheard it, and he started yelling at me about Oliver Stone. Like, why are you giving money to that communist? Like Oliver Stone's not a communist. He just doesn't think, you know, he just doesn't think we should be intervening in other countries. And we had a fight about it in the in the college bookstore, me and this other guy. Like, I've never had a fight like that about Steven Spielberg. No, exactly. That's a- <laughs> <laughs> you know, <laughs> I really thought this guy. I thought this guy. I thought the two of us were going to start fighting. That's how <laughs> intense this argument was. And like, that's you know, that's Oliver Stone. That's what Oliver Stone does to you. But that's one of the things about him that, that I sometimes even maybe, I mean, it's a strong word, but strong, struggle with a bit. It's the combination of his values that are sort that are, you know, sort of to the left, so to speak, and, and a sort of white, white machismo <laughs> on the other side. He, he's, yes. he has like both of them. He's not super great with with women i would say in minute but i mean what do you what do you feel about that do you understand what i mean yeah well and yeah and in fact i talked about that with him it's in the book we've got like a whole section of the book where i talk, i press him on his uh his treatment of women i think particularly in his early films i think he got better i think he got a lot better um with um you know in terms of making interesting women who are at the center of the action like you know heaven and earth which is the main character is a woman um, Natural Born Killers, which is, you know, about a couple and Juliette Lewis's characters, I think, you know, none of those characters are admirable characters, but I think they're all really interesting, including her. Um, and then Pat Nixon and Nixon, I think, is a fully rounded, you know, complex mm-hmm. individual. And I think after that, he's on fairly firm ground. I think his heroes tend to be men still, but he's not marginalizing women in the way that he was in his earlier films. Um, but yeah, we talked about that and, and, you know, he's also got some, what I would say are kind of, uh, culturally reactionary tendencies, like, 
you know, you've again more in his early films and then his more recent ones, but he got in trouble for his portrayal of the Turks in Midnight Express, which he wrote, and uh, Cuban Americans and Scarface. And um, his argument, I, I, I brought this up to him, and he just said, you know, hey, the Turkish prisons are not are not nice places to be, and and uh, they and they were there were human rights violations, and that and that that was a shame, you know, what happened in those prisons in the seventies, and. Uh, he didn't really, he kind of wouldn't take it back. And, uh, um, Scarface, he just said, you know, that movie was about, was not about Cuban Americans who go to the barbecue and, and, you know, watch soccer and, you know, love their children and hang out at the, at the park and that kind of stuff. Like this was about criminals. Right. Right. <laughs> this was about criminals. It was about the criminal underworld. And, you know, it's like the Godfather with Italians, like, you know, is that is the Godfather defamatory towards Italians? I suppose you know, but it's you know if that's if that's the only Italians you've ever met are the ones who are in the Godfather. Right, right. You know that that's his point of view, and a lot and a lot of people would disagree. You know, a lot of people would disagree with that answer, but that was his answer. Right. So, and I mean, he has in the book. He's pretty open to the fact that his dad paid for the first woman he had sex with. Yeah, he lost his virginity to he lost his virginity to a woman that. His dad hired, and his dad uh, liked hookers. His dad liked, uh, you know, he had uh, mistresses and he had uh, women that he paid to have sex with. I mean, his dad was uh, had that as kind of part of his life, and, and Oliver was around that. There's actually a picture in the book of little Oliver. He's probably four years old, four or five years old. He's sitting on a woman's lap. And uh, and I said, "Is this your mother?" And he said, "No, that's one of my dad's girlfriends." How, how does he? How does he? <laughs> how does he talk about? I mean, the the fact that he did um, have lose his virginity to a person. How does he sort of feel about it today? He just he thinks he's like it's just something that happened to me. He doesn't really, you know, he's not having a dark night of the soul about it. I mean, the guys, the guys, he's seventy years old. Oliver Oliver Stone is seventy years old. He he grew up in an, in a extremely male environment with an extremely masculine dad. I mean, his dad, you know, his dad wrote poetry and was educated and all that, but he was a pretty, he was, he was not like a wilting lily, you know, he was really like a pretty, he was pretty macho. He was a sexist. He was sexually very, um, uh, voracious, you know, you know, he was probably, uh, I think he would be probably what you would call a sex addict now, his dad. Mm -hmm. And, uh, um, and his mother was uh, absent a lot of the time, partly because she couldn't, you know, couldn't handle being around Oliver's father and who can blame her. Um, and uh, they got divorced and he, you know, he went to an all male school. He went to private schools that were boys schools, which is very common during that time. And then when he was old enough, he, he entered the military, which is also very male. So this guy's development, like his development in terms of being able to relate to women didn't really start until he was about 22 or 23 years old. So that's, you know, that's something to bear in mind. Like when people say, oh, Oliver Stone, he doesn't understand women. He's a sexist. Well, you know, I would say he, I think he probably understands them better than a lot of people who were saying that about him. Um, but also that he's a work in progress and he was a late starter. You know, and I, and I also think that his um, 
when he had success as a screenwriter, which is when he was in his late twenties, he immediately, you know, made a, he made a lot of money, went out to Hollywood and there was nobody. And Hollywood is also very male, very male, very macho, you know? So this is a guy who's been going from one environment to another where that particular aspect of his values hasn't been challenged politically, politically, his his values were challenged starting when he was 18, 19 years old. And he's changed as a result of that. But culturally, I don't think, you know, in terms of gender, I don't think his values were challenged. And that's not, you know, I guess you could say, well, he should have, you know, tried to enlighten himself. But most American men don't. Right. They just don't, you know. And, and I, to me, that just makes him, it makes him interesting. Like, as a biographical subject, that makes him interesting. Another thing he says that he realized that the American political system was rigged during an, his own drug bust, which I think was a minor drug bust, right? Right. That that's when he started thinking about how you have to have a lot of money um, in order to get off of things um, legally. Yeah, he got arrested. He got arrested for uh, possession of a you know medium sized amount of marijuana when he was down in Mexico right after he got out of Vietnam. And he was thrown in jail, and he the only reason that he didn't serve six months to a year for the, for a fairly small amount of marijuana was because his father, who is rich, bailed him out. His father, like, and the, and the bail sounds so excessive to me that I think it was a bribe. Oh, really? How much is it? I think it was a bribe. Yeah, it was like $10,000 or something ridiculous, and this is 1970. And I think, and, and Oliver came out of that, and I think that, in retrospect, was probably the beginning of his radicalization politically, because he was the only white kid in that, in that jail. Everybody else was black or Mexican and they were, they were all, none of them could afford a private lawyer, let alone have a dad who could come in and just write and just throw down a wad of cash and get their son out. Right. You know, and, and that got him thinking about the inequities in American society. And he got angry. He got angry about it because he, he you know, he, all of those other kids weren't going to get out. Like they weren't even going to get a trial. Probably they were going to have to plead guilty and they were going to be spending part of their, you know, part of their youth down in Mexico over a relatively trivial infraction. And, you know, Stone's attitude towards drugs is very, uh, very liberal, very liberal. Like his attitude is, you know, legalize it, legalize almost all of it. Um, he, he finds it outrageous that the American military is being used to prosecute the drug war. And he's railed about that a lot. Like if you go back, I've done a lot of research on this guy and writing this book and he, that's, he's been a hundred percent consistent about that dating back to, um, the early eighties really. Um, and he's pretty frank about his own drug use and about U S drug policy. I think he's, he's really got a, a really, a, a completely well-developed view of America's place in the world and its, its view of itself and the way that it conditions the minds of Americans and how that affects the rest of the world. Like there's, there's a level of complexity there that um, very few filmmakers have. And I don't think it's always easy to see because Oliver is making movies for the widest possible audience. So he's painting with a very broad brush but I always like to tell people, I think on the level of the writing and the characters, Oliver is being as broad as possible on purpose. But I think uh, at the level of the filmmaking, he's very sophisticated. Right. His editing, particularly the editing of his films, um, in, in that middle period, like roughly 1989 to about 1999, 
um, the editing was like something you would see out of Jean-Luc Godard's most experimental phase. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, it's really incredible what he does, the way he free associates as he's telling a story. Um, and uh, that's another thing that I think people don't maybe give him enough credit for. Yeah, and also makes him a, a more challenging filmmaker for the broader masses is his visual style, maybe. Yes, I think so. Although there was a time when people were cool with it. I mean, that's you know, it's very depressing for me to think about the fact that one of the reasons why Oliver Stone's films were popular, like it wasn't necessarily because of their political content, because a lot of that's very offensive to, to anybody who's politically conservative. It was it was the fact that there it was the filmmaking that was that was drawing people in. It was uh, challenging people. The people wanted to be challenged in that way. They wanted to go see something like uh, JFK or Natural Born Killers. I think partly to test themselves. And uh, I don't see a whole lot of that in moviegoers right now in in ma- in the mass audience. I think the art house audiences still have that tendency, but. Um, I don't see that in, in Hollywood studio films anymore. And it saddens me. I don't see that tendency. I don't see, I don't see people experimenting with form in the way that Oliver did back in the day. That do, it doesn't happen. It just doesn't happen anymore. Well, I just have one more thing before I talk a little bit about Snowden. Um, you got some new information, some pretty hot information about um, his theories on, on the murder of JFK. What was that? Well, it was what happened was I was going over the book with him uh, before it shipped off to the printer, and we spent two days going over the book. So this was right at the end. This is right at the very end, and at the very end, he, uh, he, I said, "Okay, well, thank you, Oliver. I really uh, thank you for being so generous with your time. And uh, if I have any other questions, I'll let you know." And I was putting my backpack on, and he said, "Did I tell you about the sniper?" And I said, and I put my book bag down, and and I said, no. <laughs> <laughs> He's such a dramatist. <laughs> He's very dramatic. He the way he tells stories story. is very dramatic. <laughs> he completely does. He completely does. He's a great storyteller. And I took out my tape. I took out my recorder and said, one, okay, to continue. And he told me about how after JFK came out, this guy contacted him via a letter, you know, old fashioned letter with a stamp on it. And said, uh, you know, he had seen JFK and he was really uh, impressed and moved by it. And he said, I I was in the U.S. Treasury, which provides the Secret Service agents who protect the president. And uh, he said, I was on the president's security detail at Dealey Plaza in 1963. And I think I know, I think I might know what really happens. And I've never told anybody about it, but on the basis of seeing this movie, I think I think I can. I, you seem like a, a guy who can be trusted. And would you like to talk about it? And so, long story short, Oliver developed a correspondence with this guy, who he never knew the guy's real name. Is he would only give his name as Ron, mm-hmm. and he had to communicate with this guy through a series of through a post office boxes in like the Virgin Islands or something. And uh, he finally got to meet the guy in person. He had cancer. He was terminally ill, this guy, Ron. And this guy said that he was on the president's security detail at Dealey Plaza and that he thinks that one, one or more people who were on the detail to protect the president actually shot him. 
And he said there were snipers all over downtown Dallas and all along the parade route. And that standard procedure when a head of state mm-hmm. is making a journey from the airport to wherever they're speaking. They have snipers all along the route to protect that person. Right. You know, right. like in case people. somebody right. tries to right. shoot them or right. bomb them. Right. And he said, I was one of those people. And he said he was in Dealey Plaza. There were a lot of, you know, there were many snipers in, in, New York, in uh, Dallas that day. And he said that uh, when those guns, when the rifles went off, he, his immediate thought was uh, there's been an accident. Somebody accidentally pulled the trigger or something, but then there was more than one shot. And he believes that it was uh, an inside job. He doesn't know who did it. He doesn't know what the motive might be, but he thinks it was an inside job. He, and he thinks that it was uh, done by people on the security team, on the president's security team, and we'll, and we'll probably never know who it was, but that's his theory. And does Stone believe it? Yeah, Stone believes it. Stone believes it, and he, he said, you know, it's the, of, all the, of all the theories about how it was done, like not, not why, but how, he said that he thought that was the most plausible theory because you could plausibly deny having pulled the trigger. Right. You know, and, and it, was, it'd be, it would be a fairly easy matter to concoct a reason why all of this happened and to cover it up and all of that if it's being done. And in fact, history is filled with examples of the security detail being the person who kills the head of state. Right, right. And, and he chose to tell it in this book. Have you gotten any reaction from... Yeah, actually, you know, here's what's funny. Here's what's funny about that. There was a huge reaction overseas. Mm-hmm. But but nobody in the United States has written about it. Mm-hmm. How weird! I know, isn't that isn't that strange? Yes. What does Stone it almost, say about this? <laughs> he's he's not surprised. No. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Talk a little bit now, because he's coming out with a movie that's very anticipated. What what is his relationship to Snowden and to America today, and why does he want to tell this story that's coming up? Well, he he was fascinated by the story of Snowden from the minute that it broke, and he he is he's very unambiguous in painting him as um, a hero. Mm-hmm. He thinks Snowden is an is an American hero, un, unambiguously, absolutely a hero uh, for exposing illegal surveillance of U.S. and international citizens. Cell phones go in the microwave. Did I ask why? It blocks UHF frequencies. Before we get on to the stories, I need to know more about you. I'm 29 years old. I work as a private contractor for the NSA, for the CIA. I've worked in various jobs in the intelligence industry for the last nine years. Listen, they're going to come for me. And now that we've made contact, they're going to come for all of you, too. How about we just start with your name, okay? My name is Edward Joseph Snowden. It's a very straightforward story. The way he tells the story of Edward Snowden, who's played by Joseph Gordon-Levitt, it's a, there's some similarities to Born on the Fourth of July in that um, Snowden was a politically conservative, pretty straight-laced uh, guy, and he enlisted in the uh, in the military after 9/11, mm-hmm. after the attacks of 9/11, because he wanted to defend the United States against more attacks like that. And he broke his uh, uh, leg, uh, or rather he broke a bunch of bones in his foot in a training accident during boot camp, and he could no longer be a Marine. 
and he transferred over to the to the National Security Agency and became um, a hacker and studied cryptography and all of that. And and it was during that phase that he became aware of the massive, massive programs to to eavesdrop on, spy on American citizens and and citizens in other countries. And this is a part of it. I don't think I understood the full extent of this, but Oliver's uh, take on Snowden is that, you know, Snowden is considered uh, an enemy of the United States government because he exposed the truth. He exposed mm-hmm. the truth about this supposed war on terror that we've been prosecuting for 15 years now is only partly about national security. It's mainly about control. It's about control of markets. It's about control of our influence in the world, perpetuating our influence in the world. That's what it's mainly about. And there's sections of the movie where he lays that out for you, where Snowden is telling you about how, um, you know, they're not just gathering material about possible, you know, strikes by Al Qaeda or, or ISIL. They're gathering information on um, how countries invest in business and how they move their money around. And mm-hmm. they're basically, it's an excuse to spy on everyone, you know, in the name of security. That's how Snowden sees it. And I think that's how Oliver sees it too. He's still working on the beast. <laughs> well, he is. Yeah, he still is. We're back to, we're back to, this is another chapter in his ongoing narrative of the beast. Right. right <laughs> you right. know, I mean, Chronicles, Chronicles of the Beast could have been the title exactly. of this book. We should have named it that. But how does he feel about the current situation in the States, the sort of Trump era that we're in right now? He thinks that Trump is a, he thinks Trump is a menace. He thinks Trump is a menace. He thinks he's a danger. He thinks he, you know, he has to, for the good of the world, he has to lose um, the election. But he has no love for Hillary at all. He thinks uh, he thinks Bill Clinton and Hillary Clinton were not really liberal. They were conservative, um, and they he he hates the way that Bill Clinton deregulated the financial sector, which he thinks set the stage for the complete financial collapse under George W. Bush in two thousand eight. And um, he was a Bernie Sanders supporter. He was a big Bernie Sanders supporter, Oliver Stone, and he was quite depressed when he didn't get the nomination and, you know, he's going to vote for Hillary. He's not going to be happy about it, but basically he thinks that the United States uh, government is uh, completely corrupt and it's enthralled to money. And, uh, um, you know, the munitions manufacturers are the worst, but there are a lot of other people he thinks are nearly as bad. And he just thinks that it's almost, it's gotten to be almost impossible for democracy to function in this country in any meaningful way. Because there's too because of money, because of money, you know they, that it's there's just too much bribery, too much corruption, um, for anything really meaningful to change. And uh, I think he's probably right about that. I mean, I'm a little more. He's 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 not a total pessimist. I'm making him sound. I'm making him out to sound like he's a pessimist, and he's not. But he 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 thinks that we have the ability to change this stuff. But he also. Uh, worries that people don't care. That's the thing. He's pe- he is pessimistic about that. He's pessimistic that people are too, you know, they're too obsessed with, uh, you know, they're taking pictures of their food on Instagram and, and, you know, 
posting, you know, posting their selfies on Facebook and, 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 uh, you know, that ultimately social media has made us more trivial, has made us more trivial as people. And, and, you know, he knows that there is political activism on social media, but he's very doubtful of how, how meaningful that is. Like he, he sees it as people, you know, people have arguments about things on Facebook and they think that they've, they've actually done something political. (laughs) You know, (laughs) but, uh, yeah, I, you know, it's funny this book, uh, I spent six, you know, I interviewed Oliver for the first time six years ago. So technically I've been working on this book for six years and, uh, the bulk of it was done over a two year span, but I started it in 2011, really actually 2010. So seven years. And, um, you know, the thing that strikes me the most about the entire process is that, uh, I've actually become friends with the guy. Mm-hmm. I don't think I, I don't think I can really, I don't think I could review Oliver's movies anymore because we're friends, mm-hmm. you know, like, I don't think I could, I don't think I could have any distance anymore because, you know, I'm in his corner and I want him to succeed. Um, but, uh, but I think that he's, I think he's really, uh, you know, he's important, he's necessary, and he is not appreciated now in the way that I think he ought to be. Like, he's at the point, people ought to be venerating him in the way that they they venerated um, Hitchcock in the late 1960s when, you know, Hitchcock Truffaut came out, and I think a new generation of cinephiles who were starting to take Hitchcock for granted began to appreciate him. And that's really my goal with this book. I think that with this new movie, people are going to go back and look at some of the older films and start to realize, wow, this guy, this guy has been making movies for over 30 years and he's, he, he, he's, he hasn't given up. He's still vital. Well, Matt, thank you so much for this, for your time. This was great. Okay. Thank you so much for having me. It's always a pleasure. Thank you so much to Matt Zoller-Seitz. The book, The Oliver Stone Experience, published by Abrams, is out on September 13th. And Stone's new movie, Snowden, premieres in September as well. Now, abuse of power and conspiracy are major themes of my next interview with David Farrier, the director of the new documentary and Sundance hit, Tickled. After stumbling upon an online video of a sport he'd never heard of, competitive endurance tickling, journalist David Ferrier reached out to request a story from the company. But the reply he received was shocking, and legal action is threatened should he dig any deeper. But as he investigates further, the stranger it gets, discovering secret identities and a story of really frightening online bullying. Competitive endurance tickling. It was one of the strangest sports I've seen. So I told Jane O'Brien Media I'd like to do an interview. Instead of getting a yes or no, I got this. Association with a homosexual journalist is not something we will embrace. Shame on you. Little gay Kiwis. Regards, Jane O'Brien Media. This tickling wormhole was getting deeper. I mean, obviously, it's just for fun. Is it just for fun? It's tickling. <laughs> you know, I was young at the time, didn't think nothing of it. And I was like, $2,000, that's going to be cool. The money is endless. This tickling empire is way bigger than we ever imagined. They have tickle cells all over the U.S. They're everywhere. And at some point, these boys say, I'm done. The thing that she hates the most was no. It was like a bomb went off. All hell broke loose. All of a sudden, these videos are on YouTube, Vimo, and every other site you could imagine. Sending emails to the high school that I coach at. What do you think your mother's going to think about this? (laughs) 
we're shooting a documentary. I understand uh, what you think you're doing. If you want to stick your head in a blast first, do it. Jane O'Brien's a ghost. I started by asking director David Farrier what happened when he, as a reporter for New Zealand's TV3, stumbled upon the online video for competitive endurance tickling. Yeah, it was it was really strange because I came across this Facebook page for Jane O'Brien Media, which was running these monthly tickling contests in the United States. And they wanted people, young people, sort of aged between 18 and 22 from all around the world to apply. And if you were successful, you'd get paid thousands of dollars, be flown to America and take part in these tickling contests. And so, I mean, they were, the videos were online. So they were, you know, these young men were in Adidas gear. Um, It was all shot in this photography studio. So it looked like quite legitimate. It wasn't like they were sort of tickling each other in someone's bedroom. Like these were kind of professional videos. And so and they were fully clothed and, and yeah, fully yeah. clothed. Yeah. Fully clothed, you know, and I just thought it was a rich person's idea of a wacky sport. So you contacted them. Yeah, I did. I did. I, I went to their Facebook page and I posted on their wall saying, you know, I'd love to talk to a competitor or a sort of, you know, an organizer of this tickling contest. And Debbie Kuhn, their PR person, messaged me back and within the hour mm-hmm. saying, we're sorry, but we, we don't want to deal with a homosexual journalist. And I was kind of taken aback because obviously they'd Googled me. And also this sort of homophobic call was coming from a company that made man-on-man tickling videos, which was just the strangest thing. And and then you continued to get sort of messages from them, or did you keep wanting to, to did you get back to them again? Yeah, well, I ended up getting Debbie's email, and I emailed Debbie, and I basically just said to her, look, Debbie, I don't know what the problem is, but, you know, my sexuality has nothing to do with how I'm going to cover your competitive tickling competition for my tiny New Zealand um, TV show and, you know, all across the other side, of, you know, across the other side of the world. And so we just had these emails that started flying flying back between us. And while I tried to sort of calm her down, she just got more and more sort of angry and homophobic and racist. And I just didn't understand what was happening. And so I started blogging with all these emails, basically like just showing people in real time what was happening as I interacted with this company. Mm-hmm. And that's that's when they decided to hire um, some lawyers and say that I was defaming them. So that's when things kind of escalated. Right. So and all of a sudden in the film, you see that they actually send three people over all the way to New Zealand <laughs> to come and see you. And at that point, why did you think they were so adamant of stopping you from doing a, a couple minutes report on TV about an organized sport? I, d- I don't know. I mean, by that stage, my friend Dylan and I had created a Kickstarter because, you know, things had gotten so crazy with all the letters we were receiving from lawyers that we thought, you know, maybe there's a documentary in this. So I think maybe the Kickstarter triggered them and mm. their their whole line was basically, okay, we're going to send three representatives of Jane O'Brien Media to New Zealand and they're going to explain to you why you shouldn't make a film. And so that's when it got really real for us because until then it had been crazy emails crazy letters from lawyers and then when they were suddenly flying people to us that's when we just thought oh yeah oh my god what's happening and did you have a sense of how big this organization was at this point 
I mean, we we knew that they had money because they could afford to do these monthly, these giant monthly shoots in um, America. And then we knew they had money because they flew people to New Zealand. So it wasn't, you know, some crazy person who was, you know, just making up this weird thing on the internet. You know, they had money. We didn't know quite the scale because things got, you know, as you see in the film, things get so big, it's kind of mind-blowing. We didn't know how big it was going to get. Was there any point where you and, and your co-director were said, like, no, this is too scary. This this is, um, let's go back <laughs> to covering uh, funny animals on TV. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, there were times where I desperately wanted to go back and just cover some funny cat videos. But, you know, they, they told us very clearly that if we pursued the documentary, you know, there wouldn't be a moment where we weren't being followed by a private investigator. You know, we, you know we'd be sued into the ground. We'd lose everything. And so about that moment, I mean, I felt bad for getting my friend Dylan involved because, you know, he had a, fat, a young family and kids. And, you know, I thought, oh, God, you know, what have I landed us all in? But we talked to each other and we just agreed, you know, we were way too curious. And by that time, we'd also I sort of uncovered some stories about this company doing similar things to other people. And we thought, you know, this was our chance to expose it. But at this point, did you have any sort of ideas as to why they were, what what were they trying to hide? Because, I mean, these videos are completely open and it's not something... Yeah, they are. I mean, that, that's what really blew our minds because, you know, these videos, are, they're literally just men in clothes, like good-looking sort of athletic men tickling each other. Like, they're incredibly innocent. So... No, we didn't know what was going on. I mean, I thought there might be some, some drug running going on behind the scenes or trafficking. Or I, I thought there must be, if they're this adamant about, you know, stopping us, there must be something bigger to this. And there was, but I guess it went in a place in a direction we just didn't imagine. Right. I want to talk a little bit more about what happened, but but at a certain point uh, in terms of spoilers, I'm I'm going to I'm going to stop <laughs> yeah, a thank bit. You. Um so so but I just want to talk about one cuz you did um talk to one boy or or a man that has been in the tickle because not many people wanted to talk to you, but he did tell me a little bit about who was in these videos. Yeah, so we we met TJ who had been in one of these videos about 2 or 3 years ago. Um, at the time, and you know, he'd he'd he had a, f a family member who was going through cancer, and he needed money, and he thought this tickling contest, you know, where you get paid a couple of thousand dollars just to tickle, is a great idea, and so he did that. But you know, what we found that you know, when these young men, you know, stop taking part in the competition, they sort of say, okay, thanks for that, Jane, but we don't want to come back next month. Jane like really turns the tables and suddenly sort of finds out everything about your life, where you work, who your family is, what you do. And suddenly these tickling videos are everywhere. They are on every video site. They're on, you know, they go on gay porn sites. They're basically used to make you look like some kind of devious tickling addict. And, you know, it's hard to explain, but the way this, the way Jane O'Brien acts it really does disrupt these young people's lives and you know we were having our lives disrupted with sort of all these legal threats and that was also happening to people like tj as well and so it was it's absolutely mad is there competitive i mean besides this organization which, which yes. seems to be crazy is there a sort of a, a functioning um sport or organiz other organizations that don't have this element shady element to it no i mean there are i mean i yeah we should probably say at this point I mean, people are into tickling. There's this huge fetish community of people that they love tickling. You know, some people love, um, people like all sorts of things, but there is a large 
sort of fan base out there of tickling videos. So, I mean, that was something we discovered quite early in, and we were sort of thinking, you know, okay, are Jane's videos, are they fetish videos for someone? You know, are, is there a sexual element to this? And we met with uh, a tickling enthusiast in Florida, and he makes tickling videos as well. But, you know, it's not under the guise of a competition. It's under the guise of we're making erotic tickling videos. And and it's not this perhaps this shady activity that's no no i mean what 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 sort of disturbed us about this you know wasn't the fact that some people enjoy watching tickling videos i mean some people might find that amusing or a bit different but there's nothing wrong with it and it's it's just as you know odd or normal as anything else but what sort of really bothered us was just jane jane o'brien media secrecy all the money the harassment and the lawyers, you know, we wanted to find out what the hell was going on. And so, you know, a lot of the filmers, Dylan and I, are traveling around America, just meeting people involved in this tickling empire, which gets bigger than we ever could have thought, and sort of trying to get to the bottom of why it was happening. I'm not going to ask you anymore about what happens in the movie, because it becomes, I mean, it's really incredible. So people have to go see it, the, the twists and turns that it takes, and what actually happens who this company actually is and such. But but let me talk a little bit about, because this harassment that went on, and what has it sort of taught you about the internet? Yeah, I mean, it's funny because, you know, I spend a lot of time on the internet. You know, a lot of my job as a sort of a pop culture reporter is being on the internet. And, you know, number one, you think you've seen it all on the internet? You haven't. There's always something else out there that's going to completely blow your mind. Um you know, another thing, you know, I, th I think we're living in a time at the moment where, you know, online bullying and harassment is a huge problem. You know, when I was at school, we didn't have cell phones. We didn't have Facebook and Twitter DMs and Instagram and all that kind of thing. And, you know, the, the, the opportunity to destroy people's lives using the Internet is real and it's, it's big. And you've got these sort of vindictive people out there that, you know, it's like a game for them, you know, harassing people. And so I think it just it taught me to be, you know, you, you have to be incredibly vigilant online. And, you know, you, th you think you might be savvy to things and you won't get caught out by something. But there's always there's always a trap out there waiting. And you've just got to be so, so careful. Has this documentary, do you know if it has stopped any of the threats towards others or that this organization? Yeah, I mean, part of... Yeah, part of the reason in, in making the film was to expose what was going on. And, you know, at the moment, I think things have things have sort of stopped. I mean, they've increased for me and Dylan. I mean, we're being sued twice for this at the moment. Um, you know, we've had private investigators turning up to screenings. We've had people heckling us. We, we had a lot of the main players turn up in person to a screening in Los Angeles and, you know, in front of, you know, 150, 200 people in the audience tell us that, you know, this isn't over, we need a better legal team, things are just going to get worse for us. So it sort of seems to stop the harassment for some of the, the, the ticklers or the ticklees, as we call them. But I think for Dylan and I, it's uh, the sort of the craziness has just continued. Do you see it continuing or do you feel now that you have HBO and you have lots of people <laughs> all over the world that's seen it? I mean, sort of a, a, a situation of people surrounding you that things will get better with this yeah i mean we, we do feel incredibly lucky with the support we have i mean you know this thing's going to air on hbo next year and you know we're in we're coming out in some theaters and that sort of thing so where we feel the support but then you know at the same time this is a company with sort of seemingly unlimited 
sort of deep pockets. And, you know, the joy of the United States is that, you know, they can keep suing as much as they want just to be a pest. And so, you know, I don't know. I don't know where it'll go from But it's mainly legal threats. They're not coming after you doing strange things on the internet or no we're not we're not being yeah it's all it's all lawyers and money now so that's sort of the stuff we're facing which is uh yeah the the harassment the online harassment seems to have decreased and you know that or or for most of the the boys or men in the in the films things are are going okay for them (laughs) it's my yeah yeah i've kept in touch i mean i'm facebook friends with a lot of the people we spoke to in the film about the problems they are going through and yeah, everything at the moment is is all good, and I, I really hope it remains that way. And so what's next for you, David, after this? This is still kind of unfolding. I mean, we, we wrap the film, and the film's done, but, you know, this is still, you know, there's still things in this sort of tickling world that keep my attention. But, you know, I'm trying to, I've sort of started some research on some other ideas and sort of digging into other uh, sort of dream documentaries I'd like to make, so... Slowly making progress, but, you know, documentary making, it takes a, a long time because you never know, you know, you don't know what your ending's going to be. So it takes a lot of uh, a lot of time. Right. And this is rolled out in the States, but it's coming to our side of the world now, right? Yeah, I'm so excited because I've got, I've got friends from New Zealand in that part of the world and I really want them to see it. But, yeah, we've been out in 50 cities in America and we just opened in Australia and the UK. And so we've just sort of basically been like gradually like making our way towards you. And and I have one last question. Did you try the tickling yourself? <laughs> yeah, I, I did. When I met the um, Richard, the tickling fetishist in Florida, part of his deal in um, being on camera was that he'd get to tickle me as well. And so, yeah, he's got this this chair that he restrains you in. Your, your feet are tied in and your hands are tied in. And he tickled me for ten minutes nonstop, and it was horrible because you know this is a prof- this is a professional tickler, and he's got you know tickling tools, and he's got the the expertise to know exactly what are tickling tools. Um, he, toothbrushes, um, combs. Um, at, at one point, he took my shoes and socks off and lubed up the bottom of my feet with um, Vaseline, and then just rubbed this like bristly hairbrush up and down, and it was the worst experience of my life it was so so because you know when you can't get away you know tickling isn't fun it's really really terrifying and so yeah that didn't make it into the film but it's um i think we've got the footage on youtube um so if you go to if you go to tickledmovie.com i think you can see it you can see it there well um thank you so much david for this and thank you for the movie and and um and for taking your time to talking to me no no thanks for having me it's been fun and i hope people go in with an open mind and go to some places they didn't expect to go Thank you so much, David Farrier. Tickled is available now on Video On Demand, iTunes, SF Anytime in Sweden, and more. And thanks again, Matt Zoller Seitz, and his book, The Oliver Stone Experience. Visit our website, popcultureconfidential.com, or tweet us on at podpopculture. This show was edited by Tom Hansen, theme music by Carl Boy, and produced by René Wittestedt and myself. I'm Christina jörling Biro. Thank you. You know, a lot can happen in seven minutes, and luckily, that's how long it takes me to tell a story. 
My name is Aaron Calafato, and I'm the creator of 7-Minute Stories. I'm proud to partner with Evergreen Podcasts, and I'd like to invite you to join me on this journey. I'm going to take you on some crazy roller coaster rides using my unique extemporaneous storytelling style, and together, we're going to try to make sense of the world, all through the art of storytelling, and all in approximately seven minutes.